Hi, I'm Adam Sanford. I'm an academic life coach and professor in Los Angeles. And I'm Dinur Bloom. I'm a college professor in Los Angeles. And this is Learning Made Easier, a podcast where we discuss how we learn and how we teach and how they overlap. Welcome back to Learning Made Easier. This is episode 91, How to Handle Graduate School. You've decided on going to graduate school, law school, or medical school. You've gotten your letters of recommendation, taken the test or tests, you've applied, and congrats, you've been accepted. So what happens now? To answer that question, we'll talk about our own experiences with grad school, but note, Adam and I both went to the same program at different times, so this is a description of our program. I'll also bring in some of my uh, earlier graduate work, uh, which was taken across the country uh, when it's relevant. Other programs in other disciplines will probably be somewhat different in the specifics of what you do, but the norms seem to be pretty consistent no matter where you go to graduate school. So the first thing is the financial package. If you apply to a PhD program, you're likely going to be offered some kind of financial aid package. And often this is in the form of a teaching assistantship or a research assistantship, and that might say cover your tuition and fees and pay you some kind of stipend. So check to see what kind of offer each program gives you and when your assistantship will start because it varies from program to program. For example, for both schools I was at, I was offered a teaching assistantship from the get-go. And when I was in the same program that Adam was at, uh, only me and one other person in our cohort of, I think we were 13 or 15, only two of us were teaching that first year. And I'd like to give a shout out to that other person, Dr. Chris Vito. And that meant that Chris and I had to manage our, the additional time constraints of teaching. And that meant we had to go to lectures. We had to run our own sections. We had to have meetings. We had to spend time prepping because we were new to teaching. We were learning on the fly. But the following year, when the people in our cohort started teaching and they struggled, we were able to offer some advice because we had been through it a little bit. We knew what it was like and how to plan for classes. Now, the next point we need to make is that grad school is very different from undergrad. And we've talked a few times about how college is different from high school in terms of rigor, challenges, norms, and opportunities, and we will have several episodes coming up soon about those differences. Well, similarly, graduate school is very different from undergrad. Grades begin to take a back seat. Now the goal is developing your skills and creating new knowledge. Yes, you do get grades in your classes, but what makes your reputation is no longer your GPA. It's how much you're trying to create or publish. And so to that end, you've got to start double dipping. You need to use ideas in one class and put them with other ideas from other classes to push ideas in different directions so that you can publish work that shows something new about the world, whether it's in your chemistry program where you're saying, you know, here I've developed this new way of doing this chemical process, or you're in sociology and you're like, hey, when I put these two theories together, I can explain more about crime than I can if I only use one or the other, and here's what this tells us when we look at the data. Whatever it is, you're going to be doing a lot of that in graduate school, so you need to change your focus from the grade, the grade, the grade to publication. I need to write things for publication. And I was not told that when I started grad school. I think they've started telling people that since then in that program, but 
first two years, I was still focusing on grades because I was thinking like an undergrad, and that wasted a lot of my time. And like Adam, I wasn't told about having to publish from the get-go, not by faculty at least. I was told by other graduate students. And when faculty did mention it, and this was a lot more at the first program I was at, no one ever offered advice on how to, and no one showed, here's a journal that you should try applying to, or here's a conference that you can go to. And that's something that departments should look into. If you want students to publish, give them opportunities, give them journals. If you want them to go to conferences, show them how to. And to the end of double dipping, I'm very interested in the social causes of mass shootings. So I used my sociology theory classes and I used my criminology classes to try and figure out why mass shootings happen in the United States. And that meant that, yeah, I could write about something I cared about for a grade, but the bigger goal for me was to try and get published because publishing research is a big part of what we do as professors. Now, typically grades do matter for funding and some departments will use your first year grades to determine what funding you get in subsequent years, but more programs offer a guarantee of funding for a certain number of years, as long as your grades are above a certain level and that level is usually B or B plus. So we're not suggesting that you blow off your grades. But instead, focus on developing your ideas for your writing and your publication in each class and let a good grade in that class be your reward. Think of it as a side quest while you get published, which is the main quest. Now, the next thing is there's a different intensity in grad school and there are different stresses compared to undergrad. In grad school, the workload is much, much heavier than in undergrad. You're not reading 50 pages a week. You're reading maybe 250 pages a week across all your classes. That's books and articles. And you're expected to help lead discussions in class. Most graduate classes are small seminars, you know, 15 or fewer students. Denor was in a class once with three other people. I was in a class with four other people. And you have to keep up with the work because if you show up regularly underprepared, you're going to stick out in a very unwanted fashion. For most of my classes, my first two years, we had weekly assignments. And these assignments were typically memos summarizing a reading or a group of readings, or we would work together on a stats project. And you very quickly have to learn how to juggle your teaching obligations, teaching prep, your class time. And that's including research that you want to do. And that's a really big challenge. We've talked about time management in earlier episodes and those, those skills are key when you're in grad school. But in addition to the quick turnarounds with work, because it was a weekly memo for four or five different classes each week, it meant that for two years, if not more, you're getting constant feedback mm -hmm. on how to improve your work and how to look at readings. And that can be overwhelming sometimes. But the seminars also offer you insights that you didn't have because you're hearing what other people are getting from the reading. And when you have 10 or 15 people that are all reading something and you get three or four or five different interpretations, well, that means that you have four or five different ways of understanding the same material that you're all looking at. And that, for a lot of students who come in with the undergraduate mindset, is a little confusing because in undergrad, even even though we have tried to say in other episodes to Nor and I that you know, it's no longer about the one right answer once you get into undergrad, there's still this mindset that there must be a best answer, right? There must be a really good answer, and that'll give me the A, and that's no longer the goal. Now the goal is to say, how many different answers are there? How do they explain this thing that we're talking about? 
How many different explanations are there for this thing we're talking about? I constantly frustrate my crim students because they say, well, what's the answer to what causes crime? And I'm all, we don't know. We have like 12 theories about it. Well, one of them must be more right. Well, yes and no. Then that you begin to get that yes and no view when you get into grad school. My cohort met twice a week to handle one theory class that was doing dirt to all of us in first year. And the professor, he was one, he was a great professor, but he was also one of those professors who expected us to find exact quotes in a 200 page book to answer questions that weren't terribly specific. So as a group, as a cohort, this means like the 14 people who all came into grad school in my department at the same time developed the strategy of coming up with, with not just possible quotes to answer his questions, but also arguments for why those quotes worked to answer his questions. And we completely took over the graduate student lounge that quarter. But by holding those meetings in the grad lounge, we also got to pick the brains of many of the members of older cohorts who had been there longer than we had, fourth years, fifth years, who had also taken that class with that professor in their first year. Although we didn't realize it at the time, this was also a big big part of our graduate school socialization because we were making important connections with other people who would later on become our professional colleagues. Your first major milestone is going to be your master's thesis writing and defense. Take some of these questions that you've been researching through your classes and turn them into a coherent research project. You'll work with three professors. One of them is called your chair and the chair is the boss of the committee. Ideally, you want your professors to get along, and a good idea is to ask your chair who they recommend to be on your committee. The people they recommend can be professors who are experts about your question. They might be experts in your general field, or they might be great at the methods you're using, and they can advise on that part. You, as the student, want to make sure that your committee works well together. If committee members are fighting, it can ultimately hurt you. And you don't want to be in grad school for anyone's drama or anyone's fight. You're in grad school for you. So you pass your thesis defense, and now you have a question facing you. Do you continue for the PhD as a doctoral student, or do you leave school with a master's degree? And I want to point out, too, that this was in our program. In our program, you came in from bachelor's at, with your BA or your BS, and then you started working on a master's degree on the way to the PhD. Some Doctoral programs require you to already have a master's degree from somewhere else. They don't give it to you on the way. But in this case, when you pass your thesis defense, am I going to go on for the PhD? Maybe at another school? Or am I going to say, okay, I'm done, I'm leaving? And if you choose to leave with a master's degree, there's no shame in that. There was one girl in my cohort, and I say girl because she was about five years younger than anybody else in the cohort. She was 21, and she finished her master's degree. And we all expected her to go, to go on for the PhD. We all expected her to go on for the PhD because she was brilliant. But she came to every single person in the cohort and had a conversation with each of us to say, here's why I'm not going on to the PhD. I have been in school since I was five years old with no breaks. I am so done. Last I heard, she was working in administration in a school in Colorado. Hey, more power to her. That's her right. But if you choose to continue for the PhD, then you're facing some more milestones. And the next milestone after the thesis is the comps, or in some places, the quals, comprehensive exams or qualifying exams. 
And these are exams designed to show that you have expertise in the specific areas of your field where you said you were going to do your work. So for me, for example, I focused on social theory and on criminology and socio-legal studies. Denor, on the other hand, I think you focused on crim and organizations, right? And when you pick a grad school, and we talked about this before, you want to pick a grad school that's going to do those areas that you want. And it's mainly going to be based on what are the professors in that department doing, right? So my department, our department had a strong theory group. It had a strong organizations group. It had a strong crim group. And so what I had to show in my quals was that I knew what I was talking about when it came to social theory and that I knew what I was talking about when I took my crim qual. I had to show that I knew both of those things like the back of my hand. And for us, those were not multiple choice tests. They were essay exams on steroids, and we each spent months preparing for each test. I think I spent seven or eight months preparing for my first qual and about four months preparing for the second one. For my criminology and sociolegal qual, I was lucky because I had two friends taking the test the same semester I was, and we had the same shared reading list because we used and older students who had recently graduated from the program used her list, and the three of us divided the reading. Each of us would read one article a week from the core reading list, one or two articles from the other areas that were on the test. And that meant that we were going through about nine articles a week instead of three on our own, and we could ask each other questions. From my second qual, that was the organizations and institutions one, I was the only person in my department taking the test that year. But a friend of mine had taken the test, I think, one or two years prior, and he sent me his reading list, and my committee had to revise it. They added some material in, they took some out. And while I put the time in on the test like I did on the CRIM exam, it was tough because I didn't have anyone else to share that workload with and to bounce ideas off of and say, hey, this is what I'm getting from this reading. Does this make sense? What would you get from this? Now, both of my qualifying exams were answering three questions in three days and writing 10 to 15 pages for each of them. So I was writing 30 to 45 pages during a weekend. Those weekends sucked. <laughs> what saved me was the day I got those tests, I started outlining different questions. I took that time and I would write down, here are some of the readings that I can use. And by the time that Sunday rolled around and I was mostly brain dead, I at least had some ideas and some readings pointing me in the right direction as to what I wanted to write. And that let me finish those tests. And the important part for me about taking my two calls was having a solid grasp of the stuff in the reading list or bibliography that I'd committed to so I could draw on it and write intelligently when the questions were presented. And that meant that I was annotating three or four articles or gutting two books every two or three days during my prep period so that I could quickly look for this topic in my notes and pull that out and look at all the annotations. And I'd know, okay, here's my sources for this particular question. It's asking about these two theories and these two uh, theorists and on this topic. So I'm going to grab all that and I'm going to use my annotations and I'm going to cobble together, you know, and I, I did it the same way that I teach my students how to write papers. When I did my quals, I was required to write six 
15 page papers over that same 72 hour test period. Now, even with the disability accommodation that I got double time, so I got six days instead of three, I hardly slept or ate during those six days because I was busy writing a paper every freaking day for six days straight. The program changed its requirements a little bit before it was Denor's turn, so lucky you, Denor. But I had to write 12 papers over two quals, and I still have them all. And I haven't developed many of them because I'm looking at them now and going, wow, I was really productive in my 30s. <laughs> what Adam won't tell you is the hidden part of his qual where he climbed uphill to school in the snow both ways, despite both of us being in a desert. But you also didn't have the snake combat part of the defense. I'm just saying, you know, I had to do the snake combat part, but I'm, we're just kidding. Anyway, go on. Right, right. <laughs> In addition to the stresses of preparing for these tests and taking the damn things, there's the stress in waiting to find out if you passed or not. And there are different levels of pass. The highest is you passed with distinction. The lowest is you barely passed, you marginally passed. All that matters is passing the test. No one outside your department ever sees these tests. And unless you're taking the answers to these qual questions and you're publishing them, no one's ever going to know what you wrote on a test and which professor thought it was a great answer and which thought it was awful. But that waiting period is a nerve-wracking time. Uh, our department had a policy of letting test takers know whether they had passed or failed within two weeks of submitting the exam. Yeah, my experience with that was that it took them about three weeks to get back to me. And the third, the, the, the one qual that I took, the time when they were going to notify me happened during a winter break. And so I was going, I'm not going to hear back until we get back on campus. And then the department secretary called and left a message on my home phone saying, Adam, you passed. I just wanted to let you know, because otherwise you would have had to wait another week and a half until we got back on campus. And I didn't want you to wait that long. And I'm like... I love our department secretary. And by the way, folks, just as a general rule, whether you're going to grad school or looking for a PhD job, always be nice to the department secretary. She controls everything, even though she doesn't usually know it. Okay, you want to be really nice to your department secretary. Okay, so you've passed those quals. Yay. Now what? Now you're a doctoral candidate. And at this point in your graduate process, you now have to choose a topic to write your dissertation on. Now, now remember, Denor and I were in a social science program. This may be different for some of the hard sciences. For example, I know that for a lot of doctoral candidates, they're working in someone's lab and the person in the lab tells them you're going to work on this project and that's your dissertation. Okay. But in the social sciences and usually in the humanities, at least, you now have to find a topic to write your dissertation on. And that might be extending what you did in your master's research, or it might be taking a question from your quals or your comps, or it might be an entirely new topic. But you've now got to come up with an important question that you want to research on. Then you have to figure out how you're going to do the research, and you're going to have to find out what others have said about your topic and related topics in order to produce, essentially, a book on what you're talking about. And just like the master's thesis, you're working with the committee. For me, it was five professors on the committee for the defense of the idea, or what's called the prospectus. And there were three professors for the defense of the actual dissertation. Now, each department has its own rules on how many professors have to be on a committee and any requirements. For example, for the prospectus defense, I had to have at least one professor from outside my own department. 
but I didn't have to have them on for the defense of the dissertation itself. And I think if I remember correctly, we also had the outside the department person on the committee. Mine was from, I believe, from PolySci. So I had three people on my master's thesis committee and then an outside person. And then with my dissertation, I also had four because I had a lot of stats happening in my dissertation. And I will admit stats is not my strength. And so I made sure that I had two different people who did crim and my chair and then person who's really good at stats so that he could check me if my stats looked completely wonky or screwed up. And also so that I had someone to go to with my stats questions while I was running uh, my data and finding out, you know, what are the relationships? So when you pick your committee, you also need to think about what help do I need? What background do I need for my committee? Again, ask your chair first. You don't want someone on the committee that has, say, a vendetta against someone else on the committee. You want to make sure they get along. You want to make sure they're not going to fight because that's scary and that really can damage your prospects. So make sure you pick people, but also make sure the people that you're picking, and again, talk about it with your chair. I went to my chair and I said, you know, I think I need this fellow on my committee because he's the stats man and I've got to do some funky stats stuff with my data because I can only collect so many uh, cases. And he said, yeah, let me talk to him and see if he wants to be on your committee. And so that's how we got that fellow on my committee. So you need to think about that too. Now, your dissertation research is typically going to take one to three years, depending on what kind of research you do. For example, I did interviews, and that takes a lot longer than doing content analysis or using secondary data to analyze. If you do a stats-based project, see if you can analyze data that's already been collected to save yourself some time. But if you do that, read what the original researchers asked and how they measured their stats in their articles to make sure that you're using a consistent interpretation and you can see if you need to add or change any questions. And for me, I did survey research, which is similar to interviews. But for me, part of the problem was finding a cost-effective way to get a lot of people to take a survey. And I had to do several sets of surveys because when you're building a survey around new ideas, you're first gonna have to test whether the ideas are what you think they are. And then once you've done that, then you have to do a completely different draw. And I had to find ways to fund that research because there wasn't much funding for it. And so I had to take out a loan actually to, to pay SurveyMonkey to get my last set of survey data. And that also took some time. It also stretched it out. Using existing data is easiest, but it's also hard to get new answers out of existing data a lot of times. Weigh the costs and benefits. Is it going to help me more to do my own survey or should I just go search for a tool that other people have already used and that's validated? Can I make that work for the, the questions I want to answer? Now, typically, for both your prospectus defense and your dissertation defense, you're going to get asked questions about what your project can or can't answer and whatever limitations exist in your data. This is fine because no single project can answer complex questions in full detail. For example, for me, for me, there's no access to high profile university football and basketball players to interview. So what did that mean for my current project? What would it mean for the future? The questions aren't designed to make you feel bad. They're designed to push you toward thinking about material to include new limits or ways of understanding the problem. But when you're up there and you're facing the firing squad, it's intense. 
Mm -hmm. Talk to the committee members that you trust. If you've had any of them for classes, that's going to give you a sense of the kind of questions they ask and what they look for. Yeah, when I did my prospectus defense, and again, when I did my dissertation defense, my chair made a point of asking me questions until we reached the point that I couldn't answer the questions. And for my prospectus, that took about 40 minutes, but for my dissertation, it took nearly an hour. And that's okay. That's their job, is to find out the scope of what you know, the limits of what you know, and where you could still work on stuff and where you can still expand your, your research beyond the dissertation. I also recommend when your committee members ask questions, make notes, write down what they asked about, write down the main points that they are asking about so that you can remember what they asked and then you can answer them with your own points. And remember, it's totally okay to say, I don't know, or I don't have an answer for that, or I can answer some of that, but there are implications that I haven't really considered yet. Not knowing everything is okay, even if it doesn't feel that way. Think through your presentations. Either ask yourself questions and think through answers, or have your friends or family or classmates ask you questions. Present your research at conferences. They can be on campus, they can be off campus, but get used to presenting your ideas in front of an audience. I presented my dissertation at a Pacific Sociological Association conference a few months before the dissertation defense. And personal note, getting the date for the defense was rough, because of an argument among two of my committee members. So when we talk about your committee members getting along, that's the kind of drama you would like to avoid. But having the conference experience and having presented this work at a few prior conferences as I was sharpening it, well, that really helped me because I could turn this dissertation defense into just another conference talk. And look, there are always nerves. Yeah, even professors get stage fright. But that experience really helped me build to the point where I was nervous, but I wasn't scared or intimidated. It made that fear a little less intense because I had enough experience doing this. The thing about graduate school, when you apply, it's like applying for a very intense full-time job. And when you get it, your grades are not what you're being judged on. Your product is. So, in order to keep yourself sane while you're doing this full-time, very intense job, you've got to remember to do things that aren't graduate school, too. And so Denor and I have a few suggestions for how to handle that last part of it. Have a group of friends inside your department. Be friends with the people in your cohort. You'll largely be in the same class as your first year, maybe your second. So why not be on good terms with them? My cohort used to go to a bar by campus when we were done with classes once a week, typically Thursday or Friday afternoons. We'd grab a bite to eat, some people would drink, we'd just relax, we would talk. We would go bowling or we'd play pool because they were cheap ways of getting out of the house and spending time together as a group and it was a way to blow off steam. You also wanna make sure to have hobbies or interests that had or nothing to do with school. And you wanna budget time for them. Graduate school is stressful in a lot of different ways, and you need activities outside of school to hit that reset button. It's a form of self-care. For example, I do sports photography, and I make time to do that and to work on it, and that helps me not burn out in the classroom. 
And in the same way, I made a point of doing hobbies that had nothing to do with my grad work either. For part of my time in graduate school, I was in a medieval recreation organization, and that allowed me to have a completely different social life away from school. It also allowed me to do a lot of creative work, and that helped me keep my mind off my papers and my exams and my quals so that I didn't get overwhelmed and crash and burn. So that's what we have for you in episode 91. If you're finding this podcast helpful, please share it with your friends. We're always hoping to get new subscribers so we can help more people. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Android. We're hosted on Blueberry.com. And also, we'd really appreciate it if you could write a review of this podcast for us on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to join us next week for episode 92, when we'll give our first overview of how college is different from high school. You've been listening to Learning Made Easier, a podcast about how we learn, how we teach, and how they overlap. We want to say thank you to all of our supporters on Patreon who make this podcast possible. If you want to support us, please go to www.patreon.com slash learningmadeeasier. We look forward to seeing you next week.